everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. It's Volume 5, Issue 212. You can play along with Cane and Rinse Volume 5, as more and more people are telling us that they're doing. Uh, now, this is something that doesn't happen a lot, but in a change to your previously advertised program, the next podcast will no longer be Ori and the Blind Forest, and that is for the reason that they are releasing a definitive edition or, or an update if you've already got it. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we cover that properly. So we're going to move that show back in into the year a little bit more so we can have a bit more time with it. And instead, we're bringing forward a shorter game, and that is Her Story. So if you want to play that and then listen to the show when it comes out, uh, that's your task for the week as you're listening. After that, we're back to the previously advertised program. So that's Final Fight. Then it's uh, Doom 3 and Resurrection of Evil and the BFG edition of Doom 3. Then it's Beyond Two Souls, and after that, returning to our Zelda series with that Ocarina of Time. Head to canerince.com, as I always tell you, for articles and features and reviews and links to our forum, our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. It's all good stuff. If you enjoy the podcast, you will probably enjoy all of that stuff as well. Uh, and if you do enjoy what we do, all of that stuff and the podcast or just the podcast, there are now a number of ways which you can support us at Cana Rinse. We have a Patreon. Uh, there's no paywalls or anything like that. All content is free to everyone regardless. But uh, if you want to contribute, go to patreon.com slash and you can donate a dollar or more if you like. Uh, per month or you can make a one-off donation and then cancel and uh, all that uh, fundage will help us to continue trucking we also have a podcast our latest itunes review for sound of play says i finally got around to checking this out and now i get it uh, and a five-star review so i think that's the case for a lot of people they haven't quite realized just what a great podcast sound of play is uh, some people, as I keep saying, love it even more than they love this main Cane and Rinse podcast. So do remember to seek that out and download Sound of Play. We're up to 36, I think, at the time of recording. Uh, you can review and rate and subscribe to both of those podcasts on iTunes primarily, but also places like Stitcher Radio and TuneIn. Now, to the business at hand and joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue, we have an all-American panel of Ryan Heyman. That is me. Sean O'Brien. Hello, hello. And returning guest, Leah Hedu. Hello, hello. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. Now, uh, we're going to issue a Zelda-type spoiler alert for this one. I think it's fair because we mm -hmm. know uh, quite a few people who haven't got around to playing some or all of the Zelda games, in many cases the Cane and Rinse panel included, uh, are play playing along with the podcast. Now, some of these games, I think it's fair to say, uh, aren't that spoilable really particularly the early ones but here we are we're on the fourth Zelda now and this one I would say is probably the most spoilable so far mm -hmm. so uh, if you haven't played it before and you've managed to go the last quarter of a century avoiding finding out the plot uh, we're probably going to give that away in fact we definitely are so uh, so that is your warning so this was developed by Nintendo EAD, of course, directed again by Takashi Tezuka. Uh, Miyamoto, once again, is credited as a producer, although we know uh, that he didn't have uh, very much to do with this game early on at all. 
um, the artist for a lot of the promotional art, if less so the art in the game, although things like the the cameos in the uh, the cutscenes were uh, very much based on his work. That's Yoichi Katabe. And Koizumi uh, San returns as a writer, along with Kensuke Tanabe. And we have different composers. Uh, now, I believe... Uh, the the man uh, Totake worked on this as well, but I don't have him here in my credits. But uh, the uh, him famous for the Animal Crossing games. But we also have Minako Hamano and Kazue Ishikawa. And although he's not credited either, uh, I think he's special thanks in the rolling credits. But Ko- Koji Kondo uh, has to be mentioned because um, the Zelda March appears there, and we know he wrote that. So the original version of this game came out in Japan in June nineteen ninety three. Uh, and followed in August in the USA and in the wintertime, November, December in Europe. And then five years later, because do remember, it was actually nine years between the release of the original black and white Game Boy and the first colour iteration, the Game Boy Colour in 1998. And this came out early on in the Game Boy Colour's life, possibly even a launch game. Uh, Japan, December 98, uh, and North America. And then it arrived early in 99 in the EU. And unsurprisingly, ever since then, it's been the DX version that we've seen uh, Mm re-released. When it has been re-released, and actually it hasn't had many, it's basically had the one re-release on uh, 3DS Virtual Console. And that was in June 2011. So even that's been best part of five years now since that came out. This makes my makes my head hurt a little bit (laughs) uh apparently the sales for the game were over 3.8 million units on the on the uh original cartridge worldwide so that was uh that was pretty decent the uh dx version for the game boy color released in 98 sold a further 2.2 million copies so that's uh, a grand total of 6 million physical cartridges out there plus who knows how many virtual console downloads i'm willing to bet Mm -hmm. quite a lot so more personally then our own histories with the game let's start as usual with our guest leah uh so 1993 and the black and white version 98 and the color version or did you come to this in more recent times well that's kind of a funny story because i when when i was asked to be on the show and when you know i I was starting to think about this i would have sworn up and down that i played this game when it came out, possibly probably for the Game Boy Color would have been my guess, but I downloaded, um, uh, you know, about a month ago, the uh, the Virtual Console version, the 3DS Virtual Console version, uh, and started to play it, uh, you know, for for my replay. And um, I don't recognize anything when I start this game up. So I huh. I I knew the the basic um, conceit of the story, you know, and I knew the big twist at the end. Um, but I, I just, the actual experience of playing the game, I, I have no memory of whatsoever. So, um, Mm. my first, as far as I know, completed playthrough has taken place over the past two weeks or so. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it, not, not to spoil anything from, from later wrap up, but it, it holds up. It really does. I was very impressed with that. So, um. I I'm I'm surprised that I didn't play it later, but I'm glad that yeah. I played it now. Um, so, it's good so to have thanks. that perspective. <laughs> Ryan, how about you? Um, I was a Game Boy Pocket and a Game Boy Color owner back in the day, and I remember the uh, particularly the shot of Link um, kind of 
mooring his ship or, or whatever. He's, he's kind of battling against the the wind. Um, yeah. And right in the opening cinematic there was pretty much ubiquitous among Game Boy, Game Boy Color advertisements. Uh, you'd see that shot everywhere. And so it was something that I always knew existed, but I, I actually didn't get around to playing it until I was preparing for this show. So I played it probably at the end of last year, at the beginning of this year. Uh, as I like to get a little bit uh, ahead of myself so I'm not up against a real uh, jam for time. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I played the DX version, so the version in color. Yeah. Yep, it's kind of the default version now because it, it does have everything the original game had, plus a little bit more. Sean, how about you? Do you go back as far as the black and white Game Boy version? Not even close. <laughs> My history right. with Link's Awakening is extremely short as it started uh, about two weeks ago when I downloaded it for the 3DS. I knew pretty much uh, nothing about this game until then. Um, I knew the name. I knew it existed. Uh, I had a Game Boy way back in the day, but I never played it back then. I only, I only played, I think, like three games for Game Boy, and that was like... Mario and Fist of the North Star, <laughs> um, but never got around to uh, Link's Awakening. So, um, yeah, played it for the first time on 3DS, uh, and I finished it about four hours ago. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, so it's not just so, me. I was concerned. <laughs> far from it. Far from it. I mean, this is this is actually unusual because, um, I, you know, some, some listeners may be disappointed that we've got nobody who's uh, steeped in this game from its, mm-hmm. uh, its 25 yeah. years ago. No, 23 years ago. Uh, but fortunately, we've got plenty of lovely correspondence from our community later mm. on. Um, and I was there at the time, but... Funnily enough, I've also only completed this for the first time for the show, so that's four for four. Uh, so my history with the game is I, I did see it back in the early-ish 90s. It was already a... Uh, yeah, no, actually, it was new when I first saw it. It would have been about 1993 when a friend was showing it to me on his uh, bog-standard, uh, big, fat, uh, greenish, yellowish, and greyish Game Boy. Um, and I remember being... I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast that I, w- I was impressed by the intro, and that was, I think that was the first Zelda I'd really seen because I didn't have my Super Nintendo at that point. Uh, mm. And he was kind of, uh, you know... Um, singing the praises of this this little pocket adventure he had but it wasn't a game that really you know demoed very well somebody just showing it to you a tiny tiny glimpse of it it was you know just this little dude walking around hitting stuff it didn't look particularly kind of you know it didn't look like there was that much to it um, but I took his word for it and I was intrigued and that led on to me getting my Super Nintendo and playing uh, Link to the Past but I didn't get a Game Boy until 1996 when the Pocket came out. And this, uh, the black and white version of this was uh, one of the first games I bought for it. And I started it off and I got to about the first or second dungeon. And then I got distracted and I put it down and I didn't pick it up again. A few years later, uh, I picked up the DX version. Um, I think that was when I got a Game Boy Advance SP, which would still play Game Boy Color Cut. So I picked Mm -hmm. up the DX Color version. Um, got to about two or three dungeons in and then put it aside and got distracted and stopped playing. And this is not something that had happened to me with other Zelda games. Uh, and then again, I downloaded it. One of the first things I downloaded on 3DS Virtual Console when it came out on there. And once again, I got two or three dungeons in and I got distracted and put it down. And yeah, so that kept happening. And in fact, even this playthrough, about 
four or five dungeons in, I put it down, got distracted. But this time, because we had the show to do, um, I, of course, went back to it and finished it a few days ago. Uh, and one of the things that I'm still trying to understand as we go into recording this show is why every time I tried to play through Link's Awakening, I got distracted or put off or mm. or or drifted away from it a third to a halfway through. So hopefully I'll have some better understanding of that by the time we finish. Um, many, many people um, have, whenever you mention Link's Awakening, and, you know, we don't deal in absolutes and opinions as facts here, but many people say, you know, the first thing they say when you mention Link's Awakening is best Zelda ever. Mm -hmm. This game really has its its absolute advocates they swear by it you know like it was the the refinement of what had gone before in link to the past and it's and like nintendo have never done it as well again since in in many people's opinion now it'd be interesting to see if any of us uh feel that way having played it much more recently than either 93 or 98 so uh going back to the development a little so interesting nugget uh, as dug up by our friend Ryan here. So the game engine that they use uh, to get this get Zelda running on the uh, the humble Game Boy was uh, based on a game that is a Japan only release still to this day. You can still only play it in Japanese. There may be a fan translation. I don't know. It's also available on Japanese Virtual Console for 3DS. But this is Kero no Tami Nikane Wanaru. Uh, forgive my pronunciation. That translates usually translates as the frog for whom the bell tolls. Uh, so this is a uh, an action role playing game. Funnily enough. Um, and it was directed by Toru Usawa for Nintendo R&D 1. Uh, Ryan, have you got anything else to tell us about this game other than um, have, you, have you had a little look into it? Yeah, you know, I I downloaded the fan translated ROM because it was uh, you oh, know, nice. an earnest okay. effort to try to play this through for the show, but I just other things came up and I wasn't able to actually get around to it, which I uh, am a little regretful for because I feel like that would have been some really good background, but... Um, from what I was able to read and understand it, it um, it really did kind of set the groundwork for what this game would eventually come to look like. Um, mm. it, it doesn't play exactly the same. Um, uh, people will be familiar with the main character, Prince yeah. uh, Sably, I believe, or Sable or something. Um, yeah. Uh, as he is a an assist trophy in Super Smash Bros. for Wii U and 3DS, you'll notice mm. him transforming between a frog and a snake which is his uh, primary power set within uh within the game and it is doesn't he uh, sort of appear in link's awakening as well as a as a uh, character you know i i know that there are some characters that cross over between the two games um just mm. as a, a nice little nod to what came previously i i don't remember whether he's one of the ones who who makes that transition over but uh i, I think at least an enemy is modeled after one of his transformation states or something, but uh, mm. there there is a um, a little bit of of cast carryover, so to speak. It's absolutely uh, it it sounds absolutely charming. Yeah, so that was the that was the game engine um, that was to be used for Takashi Tezuka to basically port a link to the past as covered uh, one month ago on Kane and Rince to the Game Boy. The idea was going to be a portable version of Link to the Past, but the development quickly branched off. Uh, 
Takashi Tezuka said, we weren't particularly planning to make a Zelda game for the Game Boy, but we thought we'd try it out to see it would, uh, to see how it would work. Um, so at first there was no official project. We'd do our regular work during normal work hours and then work on it sort of like an after-school club activity. This after-school club atmosphere was perhaps a major reason why Link's Awakening emerged as such an unusual Zelda title. Uh, Miyamoto, as I said earlier, had no creative input at this early stage and outside inf- interference you know, from Nintendo at large was minimal because this was basically being done, you know, behind closed doors um, in under people's own steam, which is amazing when you think about it. Uh, it was, as Iwata himself point, points out, something that would be unthinkable now at a time when intellectual properties are more closely protect, uh, protected than ever. Yeah, that's that's uh, fascinating to think of now because you would never, ever get something as huge as Zelda has become for <laughs> Nintendo. Yeah. Like, just kind of played with in back rooms just as as kind yeah. of a, a, just you know yeah. it's a side project uh, you know we're just we're just kind of messing around with with uh-huh. link and zelda and know, you know right? this this whole yeah. uh, that's that's really interesting i think mm-hmm. that's no one's working on a secret god of war in the, no no you're not you're not gonna see like you know the the back alley uncharted game or you know <laughs> mario the 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 um just the the random Mario title that uh, that yeah. nobody really yeah. oversaw. No, no, clearly not. Uh, so the game uh, came together so rapidly that uh, Mario and Yoshi character designs were basically thrown in there to to speed the process up. And a lot of these things remain. You'll find uh, ch- uh, bows, um, bow wows, chain chomps, and uh, uh, Goomba like enemies, and and characters that look like Mario, which is something that kind of continues as the series goes on um ag ionima who's of course been the series director from uh, majora's mask onwards uh worked on this and he says that due to the technical limitations imposed by the game boy's low res monochrome display we couldn't do much anyway uh tezuka said we moved along at quite a good speed in a relatively freewheeling manner maybe that's why we had so much fun making it it was like we were making a parody of zelda <laughs> I was talking about fashioning Link's Awakening with a feel that was somewhat like Twin Peaks. At the time, Twin Peaks was rather popular. The drama was all about a small number of characters in a small town. So when it came to Link's Awakening, I wanted to make something that, while it would be small enough in scope to easily understand, it would have deep and distinctive characteristics, including a character who looks like Mario, was therefore an attempt to unsettle the player with a familiar-looking design, to introduce the familiar in an unnerving manner. The result was a game that played much like a top-down 8-bit Zelda adventure, with the occasional side-scrolling section not unlike Zelda 2, coupled with a surreal story that took in nightmarish creatures and recognizable yet strangely untrustworthy villagers. I have a funny uh, <laughs> a funny coincidence that um, I, I once I started reading a little bit about a Link's Awakening um, after I finished it, I saw that same uh, that same little tidbit that says that they fashioned it to look uh, or and kind of to feel like um, Twin Peaks. Um, yeah. I have been watching Twin Peaks for the first time starting <laughs> at about the end of January. Um, oh, very a, good. Uh, yeah, a very good friend nice. of mine gave me a Blu-ray box set of Twin Peaks uh, last Christmas, um, and uh, we we had planned on kind of watching it in tandem because he had seen it before and I had not, and um, we had to finish watching the entirety of X-Files first. But once that happened, we got <laughs> uh, we got into um, Twin Peaks and just just reading that 
Link's away. It just it kind of clicked a little bit once I read that. I was like, yeah. okay, yes, I see. I I do see what they're going for there. But I just I really thought that that was funny. Yeah, it's in, it's curious. And one of the, the 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 words that keeps coming up in our correspondence that you'll hear later, both long form and three words, are things like dreamlike and childlike. And obviously that is, uh, that is a a kind of a feeling um, mm-hmm. that you get. Um, from quite early on, you know that you're not in Kansas or Hyrule in this case anymore. You're you learn that you're in uh, Koholint, and I'm still not entirely sure how best to pronounce this. It could be Koholint, uh, Koholint, Koholint. <laughs> um, I say Koholint. Uh, yeah, you I can say what you like. Um, and yes, and of course, the other thing is that uh, you, the first other character you see once you've been shipwrecked on this uh, island shore is this uh, young fair-haired woman. I say fair-haired, again, bear in mind that the initial version of this was grey and sort of (laughs) slightly off-green colour. And Zelda never appeared. This game is called The Legend of Zelda. (laughs) There is no Zelda in this game. (laughs) Um, Again, this takes us back to actually the the idea that um, uh, the Hyrule fantasy... Um, but even yeah. even then, that wouldn't have worked for this one, would it? Because it's set somewhere else. So, um, yeah, should this game have even been called The Legend of Zelda? Well, but it obviously, won't be the, the last link- time that Zelda's absent from a main series Zelda game as well. The concept of this game is that you exist within the dream, you and everything else in this particular game exists within the dream of this mystical creature, the Windfish. To break out of the dream, you have to awaken the wind fish, which means it won't be asleep anymore, which will send you back to your real world. But it also means the end of everything that exists in the dream world. So all these, Mm. if you're having this lucid dream in which other characters are independent and can interact with you and have sentience, you are actually condemning them to no longer exist mm-hmm. by completing yeah. the game. And they know now, that too. Like they, they will they tell you, it. they start yeah. telling you yeah. somewhere around halfway through the game. They're like, listen, you can't do this. You're going to kill us all. When you, when yeah. you wake the windfish, everything just goes away, including you and including us. Don't do it. They're, yeah. They, yeah. they are very aware of what's going on. The bosses are begging you to not destroy yeah. their world. Mm. Like this is a more kind of sympathetic uh, Zelda enemy set up than usual and I, I I just love this kind of end of the world like it is very existential in, in the same way that mm. um, Majora's Mask would go on to be later mm. and uh, you know it, it gets kind of dark and like really kind of nightmarish and haunting and almost like a, a bloodborne kind of way when you really um, you know start thinking about the implications of, of what this means for the world. So the idea is that the uh, the dream has been invaded by nightmares, and these are the the bosses, the enemies you need to uh, the enemies and bosses that you need to clear out from the dungeons. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to be um, they don't want to be cleared out because they want to take over the windfish's dreams. So there is this sort of slight element of um, I suppose it's like you could take it as ethical justification because. The, world, the the dream world is only going to be polluted by these nightmares ultimately anyway, and you're trying to stop that, you know, you're trying to purge mm. them. But by clearing out this supposed menace, this evil, you're just killing everything you know you're you're gonna you're gonna eradicate this entire dimension from its existence although i don't suppose you know it's not really discussed is it um sort of what happens when the windfish 
goes back to sleep you know that's does the same dream world come back or yeah, yeah like does he only have nightmares like that's that sucks if that's true so how do you all feel about this change in 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 tone and, and setting and and yeah what does this mean the introduction of nightmares uh doesn't feel entirely necessary like i i understand that maybe they uh maybe a story especially when this presented as kind of like a fairy tale without a clear good guy and bad guy dichotomy might be a little bit more advanced and, and nuanced than maybe like a younger audience could get behind but i i think it would have been really interesting because inhabitants of this world have enough justification by themselves to want you to not destroy their world and so you know as a force of you know, nature almost, like you are threatening their world. They don't have to be evil to want to stop you. And I think it would be really interesting and make the choice of uh, of what you end up doing with this world more meaningful if they were, uh, you know, hostile, but well-intentioned and not evil or nightmarish. Mm. Although when you really kind of look at it, the nightmares don't seem to be doing a whole lot until you go in there and mess with them. Like, I mean, you, you get the... I think it's towards the beginning of the game when somebody comes in and steals, um, I don't remember what the Chain Chomp's name is, Bow, Bow Wow? Is that, is that yeah, right? Yeah, Bow um, Somebody, they come in, but that's really the only time that they invade any place where the villagers are just kind of minding their own business. You don't see a whole lot of particularly the larger monsters until you until you bust up their houses. Like, you're going into yeah, their home true. and you're messing with them to get these instruments. And, and I, you know what this all makes me think of? It's Shadow of the Colossus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. Uh, actually, you know, you're, you're serving your own ends. You're going around this mysterious land, finding the, the layers of these creatures and then taking them out <laughs> for your own selfish gain. <laughs> um, yeah, which doesn't feel very, you know, this, this, this legendary hero of time. Um, but then I suppose, you know, it, it, there's, there's always the, the sense that maybe the whole thing isn't you know it isn't what what you're told it is it is literally just a dream and so therefore you know none of this other stuff actually exists for you to destroy in the first place right yeah uh you know so the end is link woke up and it was all a dream um and almost i wonder if this was you know because this was started as this kind of uh in-house uh parody slash fan project maybe you know maybe they were although Obviously, it ended up coming out as, you know, it was a big release, sold six million copies or whatever. Um, maybe this was kind of an insurance because it was so different and so out there to kind of yeah. keep it separate from the main Hyrule mm. hero of time sort of story. Um, let's talk about the, the visuals. Now, this is going to be slightly tricky because, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen them all. You've all seen yeah. screenshots of the original version. Um, but I assume we've all played on the 3DS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, DX version on 3DS or, mm -hmm. or some form of emulation. So we're we're looking at it through slightly different eyes. It it did look different on a you know a green or grey screened Game Boy Black and White back in the nineties. Um, now my memory was that it was uh, functional yet also impressive um, in the sense that you know you could. Despite this incredibly low, modest rev uh, resolution and you know these tiny little sprites, um, it did. They the artists did amazing work in terms of communicating yeah. animation and character on this little eight bit 
tiny little 8-bit console and this tiny little screen. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing, really. But yet, I my perspective was always, and it was the sequel, you know, well, it wasn't the sequel because we talked about that, but it was the follow-up mm-hmm. to a Super Nintendo game, uh, A Link to the Past, which uh, the graphics of which, although, as, as I say, I didn't find sort of spectacular at the time, I did find very, very appealing and very mm-hmm. attractive. And they were, you know, clearly a 16-bit, uh, you know, yeah. visual style. So it was always, it always to me felt like a slight, you know, like, well, not a slight, a fairly major step backwards. And although I like to think that I'm not so shallow that, <laughs> you know, I mean, I play plenty of 8-bit games, even well older than this one, um, and I can very much enjoy pixel art of all eras, I think there was always a slight contrast for me of having gone from Link to the Past to this a year or two later and thinking, oh, but it doesn't look as gorgeous as Link to the Past did. <laughs> Um, so how do you how do you feel about the visuals? I'd, I'd agree with with what you said about um, about kind of feeling a, a little bit almost like a step backward. But for particularly if you had played any number of other original Game Boy games and kind of right. compared those to what what um, Link's Awakening managed to do with the same hardware, it it is very impressive. And I mean, it still looks pretty good. Um, just you know, considering what it is, it. it it's I don't look at it and think eh, I don't I don't want to play this because it doesn't look very good. I, I sure. if you compare it to other things, then, yeah, I mean, there there are some issues. But I, I think that it's for what it was dealing with and for the hardware, particularly it was um, mm-hmm. it, it is still a pretty, pretty decent looking game. Yeah. And for me, the, the design of basically the entire world is what ended up winning me over. Like at first, um, I wasn't really feeling pretty much anything about the game, if I'm honest, at, at the beginning. Really? And then, yeah. And then um, it just after a while, like, as the world started to like reveal more of itself and kind of congeal as this one cohesive island, like mm. I started to get much more impressed with it, actually. And it ended up being really charming. And mm. um, as you said about the animation of the characters, too, I think really helped. So it's just even though they're just like, it's just two frames of them usually just like, you know, moving left to right or something like yeah. that. Um, it's always just really charming and then ended up putting a smile on my face by the end of it. I do like how the map is set up also. Uh, and I imagine that that mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. at least, at least partially a, um, a limitation of, of the hardware to have it kind of be this strict grid. Uh, and yeah. it, but I, I like how that works and that that's, that's as much a personal preference as it is anything else, because I kind of like being able to, to check off, you know, to see when I open the map, these are places I haven't been yet because they're still dark mm-hmm. on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm. I would actually really like to see if they were to not even necessarily do a remake, but if they were to do a follow-up, um, potentially yeah, like, a la Link Between Worlds. Like a Link Between Worlds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. What I kept thinking was I would love to have the ability, possibly on the bottom screen of a DS, for example, mm-hmm. to click yeah. on one of these squares hmm. and add my own notes to it. Because some of the some of the squares yeah, already have yeah, notes, yeah. you know, but they're not that specific. You could put, oh, there's yeah, a rock yeah. here that I could push aside. You know, you, you could put any number of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I, yeah. I think that's yeah. a, a, a possibility that, that really uh, could could be worked with. But I, I like how it's set up that way. And, and the, you know, the, um, the maps in the dungeons are, are largely the same. I mean, they're obviously modeled after the maps in the original Zelda. Um, but I, I really liked how the world map looked and just how it functioned. Yeah. And one, one grid per screen. And this time, you know, we're back. We, we talked about the slightly odd hybrid in, in the Super Nintendo game of B 
being some scrolling and some flick screen. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas after the original The Legend of Zelda, obviously it was, you know, one screen to one screen. This, we're, we're back to that, but now we've got a, a, a slightly more functional map. Um, and yeah, as you say, the, the um, you know, the, the, the annotations thing, uh, came in with uh, Phantom Hourglass, which is a mm-hmm. game we're going to cover later in the series, and I, that was probably my favourite sort of new feature about that. And I, I want to believe that um, that that a link between worlds did well enough that they would perfectly consider a maybe a new 3DS specific uh, Link's Awakening two, like they did with with uh, Link to the Past. That would be pretty amazing. I would I would be all over that. Um, yeah, uh, Ryan, how do you feel about the the graphics? Uh, yeah, about the visuals. Um, you know, I, I didn't really have that same feeling that you did that it felt like a major step down from Link's Awakening. I mean, mm-hmm. or sorry, from uh, Link to the Past. Sorry, like these names are mm-hmm. so similar. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it it is kind of demonstrably not as uh, you know, lush and textured and beautiful as that game. But in yeah. my years spent with the Zelda series, like I kind of come to expect that each game will look substantially different from the last for the most part. And each mm. game has its own distinct look. And so I was, uh, you know, I, I guess I don't really compare them one to the other as much. Um, and, mm. and so I thought for what it was, uh, this game was a uh, striking, uh, nice looking, and, and just based on the way that it controlled on more of a, uh, even the movement was more grid based, less, strafing and stuff and you would see in uh in the super nintendo entry and so all of the um uh, a lot of these aspects of the design kind of harken me back to the original zelda more more so so that was probably the one that mm. i was drawing comparisons to most of all but i think that a uh just kind of a um a a point in the favor of Link's awakening um, and especially the visuals is that many of the sprites and a lot of the uh, kind of world art elements were directly reused in um, the Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages games. And so, yeah. you know, just even many years later, they still had the yeah. faith in the art that these artists had done that this still holds up, uh, you know, even moving on to a new platform that, uh, you know, so that that's kind of a feather in the cap of Link's Awakening and the amazing work that the artist did at that team. Yeah, it's a very good point. We'll be covering uh, Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons in one podcast in in a few months' time. But yeah, that was actually that. I think those were two thousand two or two thousand three. So they arrived ten years after the original Link's Awakening, and yet on a visual level, apart from the fact that these were on the the Game Boy Color and therefore had, I think it's eight colors per screen, something like that. Mm. Not not a huge amount. Um, yeah, and and I always felt that, as you'd expect, this was a, a possibly, I think a launch game for the Game Boy Color or certainly very, very close to it. Um, and so obviously this was a game, they, they were so pleased and proud of this game and obviously it had done very well for them that they were happy enough just to re-release it on their, their long-awaited Color Game Boy. And I think actually uh, one of the sacrifices that perhaps the Game Boy Color did make that it, in, in one area in which it absolutely wasn't an upgrade was uh, the sound chip was identical to the original Game Boys, uh, as far as I know. Um, and 
now the Game Boy is home to some iconic tunes. You've got the Tetris music, although mm-hmm. it didn't debut there, but people will be familiar with mm-hmm. with those those tunes. Obviously, the Super Mario Land tunes. They had their own themes, and one of the, again one of the things which, whenever I mention Link's Awakening to people who have affection for this game, one of the first things they mention is is the audio. And again, mm-hmm. from my point of view, I came to this after, as as did anyone who played Link to the Past at the time, because this came after it. Um, it was after coming, you know, we talked about how the Super Nintendo sound chip made attempts to ape the sound of brass and strings and things like that. So again, in that level, it was a step backwards to a, a, a very completely chip tune, you know, 80s, 8-bit mm-hmm. yeah. uh, with 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 little bleeps and, and percussive white noise and things like that. But actually, again, what the coders and what the sound designers did with this game is pretty astonishing. I mean, it sounds, it is chip music. It sounds like chip music. But I think the the amount of music they've managed to cram on this cartridge and some of the memorable tunes and even the the sort of the pseudo synthesizer sounds they managed to get out for some of the mm-hmm. some of the um, atmospheric set pieces and things like that were were pretty amazing. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of this music that I still find myself actually mm-hmm. turning yeah. the audio up on the 3DS to listen to. Um, there's certainly no, there's very little element of oh god, you know this is this is harsh, this is tinny on my ears. It sounds of its time, but to me, it's impressive. Uh, there is one song um, that I would be very happy to never hear again. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> that'd be this, the music that plays whenever you get some kind of power up. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it plays like this like polka circus music that happens. That's and an odd it, mechanic, that, which we'll uh, come to. But yeah, yeah. it can uh, last ages as well if yeah, you're doing exactly. well. Yeah, exactly. And it's always preceded by the very slow text... That is unskippable. That every time yeah. you pick up the same yeah. power up, not the last time Zelda did that, like, but stop um, explaining to me what a yeah. guardian acorn I does. Get it, I yeah. know. <laughs> Maybe the first time it's... I get it, but like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I actually, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to that as a, yeah. as a separate topic <laughs> once we've discussed the music because, yeah, there, there are a few elements of this game which are still a bit mystifying, really. <laughs> Um, Leah, how did you feel about the 8-bit tunes, though? I enjoyed them. Um, I am someone who frequently will listen to podcasts or something while I'm playing games, uh, but I, I mean, I had the music turned up loud enough that I could hear it because I always enjoy Zelda music, um, well, just about always. And, um, yeah, no, I, I like I like 8-bit music uh, most of the time uh, to begin with, and I, I was not disappointed in this. I liked that they had kind of a mix of some new things and then um, variations on more familiar Zelda music in there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also I think, um, again, with within the limitations of the sound chip, um, I found generally the, the, the sounds used for the, the monster shouts and the splatting of enemies um, worked almost mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. well as the, the Super Nintendo sounds mm-hmm. in that they... Every time I walked into a new screen and, you know, the enemies regenerate and regenerate in Zelda, that's that's kind of one of the things they do, certainly in this era, respawning enemies all the time. Every time, you know, you leave, you go a couple of screens away and they're all back. But it's almost too irresistible to to not splat them every time you come through, <laughs> yeah. especially if you have got uh, the, uh, the uh, well, not the Guardian Acorn, the other one, the, the piece of power, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can just smite everything with one single wave of your your sword mm-hmm. and uh, and they go flying across the, <laughs> yeah. the screen yeah. and bursting into the corners. <laughs> and, and even with the annoying uh, repetitive circus music, mm-hmm. um, 
I I always found that you know that squelch and that splat quite yeah. quite satisfying. Yeah, definitely. And the you know all the chimes are there, and you know all the you know the the noises you expect. Um, we talked about one of the things that we almost sort of I mean we did clock it, but it was almost surprising that it was it was only linked to the past that really brought chests into the equation for Zelda. But now you know obviously this was originally going to be a port of Link to the Past, so every dungeon has chests in it. When you open chests, if it's got something worth having in it, you get uh, you get the the little fanfare and you get the the shine that's been there since the very mm. beginning for mm-hmm. opening finding secrets and things like that. And it's all obviously there's you know there's probably a pavlov's dog effect with those of us who are already affectionate with uh mm-hmm. with zelda but actually mm-hmm. you know those are those are expertly composed um jingles uh and i think these are really nice 8-bit renditions thereof i think that this game was the uh turning point in the series when it started really defining itself by its music um you know a link to the past had I uh, used the ocarina as um, your kind of warp whistle uh, type item, yeah. uh, which might have been a kind of carryover reference to Mario 3 or, uh, you know, however that came to be. But uh, kind of like um, Castlevania will put, you know, Symphony of the Night or something into its title yeah. quite frequently yeah. as a way of, you know, maybe just kind of subtly hinting like this game also has an excellent soundtrack. We're really proud of it. Or uh, <laughs> it just kind of became like a way that the series defined itself after a certain amount of time. And I feel like uh, the Legend of Zelda series kind of grew into that same trend as well. You'll see with Ocarina of Time and yeah. the Wind Waker, like oftentimes yeah. the game is named after a musical element yeah. of the game. And yeah, absolutely, uh, it, it isn't in the title here, but the entire game you're collecting musical instruments to eventually play you know, the, the ballad of the windfish and, um, it kind of unfortunately, and maybe it was just my, um, hearing of it. I love the, the piece of music, but I think that yeah. with all of the instruments, um, you know, perhaps they gave you so many instruments because they had so many dungeons and, you know, you just ended up with 12 or however many instruments at the end of the game. But I, I felt like it came across it's as a little eight, cacophonous, uh, towards well, the end there, unfortunately, but it's sort yeah, sort of. Mm. But it but it also it does play tricks because every time you collect one of these instruments at the end of a dungeon, it suggests mm. to you that you're going to hear uh, that instrument as part of this overall composition. Mm-hmm. But of course, you kind of don't because it's like yeah, I don't know how yeah. many channels of sound the Game Boys. It's like two or something. So you, yeah. <laughs> what it does is it kind of segues from one to the other in 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 the ballad yeah. ballad of the Windfish, which I, I suspect we'll end this podcast with. Um, but yeah, I do know what you mean. There's there's a lot going on, but actually, I I I thought it was impressive. I always say my favorite musical moment in this game was, uh, um, you're kind of searching the overworld at the beginning of the game. You're washed aboard um, on uh, on this this island, and you don't have any of your equipment, and you're just kind of wandering, and you get this unfamiliar background music as you're as you're traveling throughout. And you eventually come to find your sword on the beach as well um, after you acquire your shield. And right when you pick up the sword, then the, the Legend of Zelda music starts again. And you're like, yeah, we're back, mm-hmm. in, the, back in the adventure. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, embarrassingly, I got stuck really early on, even though I played this game several dungeons in before, because I completely forgot that those spiny uh, urchins on the beach, you could just hit them shield out the way, way. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah i was yeah with the shield yeah i was like why <laughs> how do i get through here <laughs> yeah so um yeah but there's there's a few puzzles like that where um 
the solution is more obvious than yeah, I think, perhaps. Definitely. And you can end up feeling rather stupid if you... Yep. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we'll come on to that. First of all, I want to talk about the actual uh, control of your avatar in the world, who is Link, of course, unless you've named him something else or if the game has named him something else for mm. you. Yeah. Uh, now, the thing that always impressed me about this um, was how uh, speedy and fluid uh, Link is to control how 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 sort of nippy, especially when he's got a piece of power and he actually goes faster in the world. And the mm. fact that he, you know, even compared to other games on you know later later uh, later times on later systems, Link is really um, maneuverable. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of JRPGs, mm-hmm. and I know this isn't a traditional JRPG in that sense, but you know there were games like Suikoden that came around this time where you couldn't even move diagonally um pokemon as well you know on the on on the same system they had that very sort of square by square rigid feel that felt more like the the Mm. original the legend of zelda from 1986 7 um but here link you know you can kind of there's no it's not grid-based movement is it he's free Mm. to move around the entire screen you know in a curve if you like i mean he's you know it's not Mm -hmm. because he's on a d-pad but you know what i mean that Mm -hmm. that to me helps me connect to the game and not feel mm-hmm. so stifled by it as I've experienced in other games like yeah like Pokemon and things. Yeah, his attacks can do the same thing as well. Like you can shoot your boomerang yeah. or uh or you can jump diagonally as well too. I like that a lot. I believe you have mm. you have to jump diagonally sometimes so they they, well, sure, they yeah. want you to quite uh, true. They want you to kind of yeah. put put that yeah. mobility to use. Yeah. Yeah, you can move in 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 the air. Um, and, yeah, yeah. and on the side on the Mario or Zelda 2-like sections, they're kind of like a cross between mm-hmm. um, Mario Land and Zelda 2, really. Yeah. They're only, you know, a million times easier than, uh, than Zelda 2. <laughs> they're certainly more at the Mario Land <laughs> difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, Link can... He's, like, super manoeuvrable in the air, more so than Mario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, in this game, Link's just so... Yeah, I just love the way he's so crisp and responsive and... Mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's never frustrating to control him when you when you press the sword button the sword just swings like this yep. instant well you say I, I imagine we're going to talk about this but you say the sword button there is no sword button unless you have the sword <laughs> equipped yeah, to right. one of your buttons this is a very good point huh. well let's talk yeah. about that now because I, this is uh, yeah this is a big thing I found that kind of frustrating um, that was probably hmm. the, the part that I had the most trouble with and, and it wasn't even that bad but it felt very it felt like the thing that had the uh, the greatest degree of limitation to me, just because mm-hmm. you pretty much, well, you don't have to have your sword taking up one of those slots, but most of the time you're going to want to have your sword taking up one of those slots. Mm. And um, yeah. you, so, so you only have the A and the B button as kind of item action buttons. Uh, on the game. That's all they could give you because yeah, that's all there was. That's all there was. Yeah. So um, that's that's kind of all you have available to you. So you can only yeah. have out of I don't know a dozen or so items. Um, you can only have two of those equipped at any one time. And most of the time, like I said, you're going to want to have one of those being the sword. So you're not going to be able to on a on a regular basis jump and have your your power bracelet equipped so you can lift yeah. you know your rocks or whatever. You're going to kind of need yeah. to have a little bit of foresight into what you're going to want to be doing in a particular area. Because although I will say that the switching is very fast, 
Um, so yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. they did get that part right at least. I think I it's you spend a lot of time in menus in yeah. Zelda games, yeah. but I think this one you spend the most time jumping in and out. And I think it is simply a, a limitation of the fact that the, game, the original Game Boy had a start button, a select button, so that's your your. Uh, and you had to even press those together to to save and quit out because mm-hmm. normally one of them's your inventory and one of them's your your map, map and then yeah. you've got a and b and that's it and and yeah so you have to spend a lot of time jumping in and out of the menu and yeah it does become wearing and i and i mm-hmm. do wonder if that's one of the reasons that i drifted away from this game in in previous times yeah yeah it's it's it there's no questioning that it's tedious but <coughs> i do appreciate that as you said leah that they they, they nailed at least that there's no lag between jumping into the start screen, picking an item, jumping right back out. So eventually, like once you you kind of make that own list in your head of like where these items are going to be when you hit the start menu, you can kind of like do muscle memory. Mm. But it's going to take a while to get there. So yeah, it stays on the last thing. So you can get really quick at it, but you do do it a lot. But uh, what I would say is that on the flip side of this, it allows this sort of quite interesting item combination management, which mm-hmm. the other games don't really have in quite the same way. So, yeah, obviously you've got ones that are absolutely necessary, like Pegasus Boots plus Rock Feather equals Long Jump. Yeah, long Jump. Mm-hmm. But there are other things, you know, you can try different combos and, and make yourself stronger in different situations against different enemies. Again, you've got this large menagerie of different enemies with different weaknesses. Um, and quite a few of the items in this game are, are pretty optional as well, including some really cool ones. Or it's like it's up to you at what stage in the game you get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the shovel can be a really crucial element to this game, but actually you don't have to get it. And even when you do get it, you can give it up for something else, for the boomerang. So, um, and the boomerang is a completely optional item in this yeah, game, but it's, incredib- it. yeah. it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, you kind, know, you kind yeah. of screw yourself a little bit if you don't I'm get kind the of really mad about it, but I never got it. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I I looked it up in the end because, um, yeah, it's part it's part of the, you need to have done most of the trading sequence before yeah. you can, which is which you do need to do to complete the game. Right, yeah. And you need to have done most of it to get the boomerang. And the boomerang, for instance, takes out the final form of the boss in, in one hit. <laughs> That's how strong oh. it is. So um yeah and uh yeah but you know that you get the you get the fire wand which in this game by the way is unlimited usage there's mm-hmm. no um sort of yeah, magic really meter nice. um you know so in in a lot of dungeons you don't look like, if you've got the fire wand later in the game you don't even need the sword some of the time because you're just like jumping yeah, and fi- and setting fire to everything That's yeah <laughs> which is pretty cool once i got the boomerang that replaced my sword for good pretty much unless i needed it right. for a puzzle or something but I, I did like um I, I I wish that the shield was a passive item instead of something that you mm. had to have equipped because I just yeah. never ended yeah. up using it. And uh yeah. you know, hopping in and out of the menus wasn't so bad unless you accidentally cursored over the ocarina, in which case you got <laughs> yeah. stuck yeah. in a menu and you couldn't Extra go right screen. and left anymore, and that was just mm. annoying and, and so I always try to bury that one at the bottom of the list if I could. Yeah. But um yeah, it it wasn't such a bad system for me overall um but it it did feel nice when i finally got to the point where i could trade out my my sword for that that hardy boomerang it was interesting to me as well that um very early in the game you go into the first shop in the first village and i don't think it's there the first time you go in but maybe after one or two story beats you go in there and there's a bow on sale yeah Mm -hmm. and that's the only place you get the bow uh, and I, I think, I think you. I'm pretty sure you do need it at some you point do, to get through. Yeah, yeah. to get a but key, you have to shoot one of those things in the eye. 
That's right. One of those but it's just yeah. there. And it yeah, actually made me spot. think of yeah, and 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 it made me think of how how they kind of tackled this in in this more modern, streamlined way. And obviously, one of the themes of this us covering the Zelda series is going to be talking about you know the how they've kind of made things uh, friendlier or more user friendly or more contemporary in each case. You know, and mm. we've by our own admission, we we struggled with a lot of the games game design in the first and second Legend of Zelda games, both, you know, in terms of their obtuseness and difficulty in some cases. And we, you know, we we had pretty much had a link to the past loving and we we felt like um, apart from a few kind of really obscure secrets, we we managed to, you know, the game was was telling us enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it's interesting here how this this bow idea made me think actually of a link between worlds where, you know, and they've gone, they've gone forward as we'll talk about on that podcast to this basically, you know, pick what item and you can rent it or buy it when mm. you need it. And mm-hmm. that's how, you, you know, that's how you can get the items in this game. And this kind of echoes all the way back to this 1993 game, which is essentially to all intents and purposes, Zelda four. Um, at some point you'll have wandered the world so long and collected so many rupees from the usual sources from grass and, and splatting mm-hmm. enemies and chests that you end up with the 900 or whatever it is required. And so you go, Oh yeah, I remember seeing that bow in that shop. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, might, I might get that. I mean, I don't know how many people will have got to the point that they need it and then go, well, what the heck do I do now? Yeah. I just thought as soon as I saw it in the shop, I thought, right, next time I've got gotta 900 rupees, mm-hmm. I've got to have a bow. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And even though I didn't actually use it for that many enemies, um, well, you've got to have it. Did mm-hmm. anybody actually mm-hmm. seal the bow? I'm told that's a thing. <laughs> no. I, did I did not. not. Yeah, it's I, a big I thing. purchased it, you know, fair and square. I gave that man my rupees. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is one of the, the the famous Easter eggs in the game, sort of an Easter egg. Um, you can nick stuff from the shop. There are ways. There are ways around this. There are ways to not pay for things by quitting out and saving. Um, you know, kind of glitch the game, kind of thing. But yeah, if you just run out the shop with, I think it's any of the items, probably. Um, I think that once you do it once, though, you you can't go back in there, or he just kills you. It's like a spelunky kind of. Yeah. Situation. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So um, I, th- I yes, think most, I believe- yeah, if most people do it, they're going to do it with a really expensive one, but. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, yeah. So uh, the game renames your save file to Thief, capital T H I E F. And I believe various characters will refer to you as such throughout the rest of the game. Um, you will be, you know, persona non grata in various places. Obviously, it doesn't lock out uh, solving, you know, winning the game. But. That's quite that's quite a cool little touch, um, and again, something that without the sort of is the sort of thing you can do in a normally you can only do in a game with the sort of level of um, freedom and item item intera- interaction mm-hmm. in something like a Bethesda game or something like that, um, you know. And that's one of the you know one of the great fun elements you can have in 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 their game worlds in the Elder Scrolls by you know choosing to to nick stuff or whatever pickpocket and all that kind of thing. Um, Normally, you know, I've just started Ocarina of Time again now for the for the next Zelda podcast, and you go into a shop and you press A and you're in a menu and you just scroll the cursor around and you can buy things or you can back out and walk away. There's there is none of this opportunity, but to have this sort of again slightly sort of left field opportunity, um, you know, it feels almost a bit kind of sandboxy to be able to have that mm-hmm. <laughs> that flexibility. Um, but no, I paid, so we're all good. We're all good people here, right? <laughs> yes. But it's nice to know it's in there. Um, 
so yeah, I think uh, obviously one of the the things that we feel that the Legend of Zelda games kind of live or die by is by the quality of the dungeons because the dungeons are something that you spend in total a, a lot of time doing. Um, to me, partly it boggles my mind uh, how much content there is in this little Game Boy cartridge. Yeah, yeah uh, really. This is, it's a 20-hour game for me. I don't know about you guys. I did most things, but not everything. Um, but a good chunk of that would have been spent in the however many eight dungeons. Yeah, I think yeah it's eight all together. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, much like A Link to the Past, the, the level of puzzle design in here is exemplary for me. Mm-hmm. But... I have to say that I found the last two dungeons really challenging uh, like, yeah, yeah. in terms of lateral thinking. Now, I, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm the best at solving video game puzzles, but I know I'm not a thick person. I know I'm not <laughs> stupid. And I had to look up some of these things towards the later two dungeons because I was worried I was just going to get properly stuck. Now, I may have just, because I was enjoying the puzzles, and I think I may have in the old days without the deadline of a podcast, I think I may have stuck with it and and just continued to do what I used to do back then, which is, you know, keep looking, keep working out, keep understanding the legend, the, the language of the dungeon mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how it all locks together and links together and how, yeah. um, you know, the, there's the, the, the penultimate dungeon is the one with the big heavy ball that you have to throw at these I was just trying to remember pillars. which one it was that had that. I knew it was one of the late ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of the Princess Ruto one in, in Ocarina, which is my least favorite dungeon in Ocarina in Jabu Jabu's belly. Oh, and that sort of it. thing where you, <laughs> where you have to, you have to uh, actually, you know, get an item, carry it around with you and work out how to get it from one place to the next without losing it down a hole before it resets and all this sort of thing. And, ah, oh, this dungeon, dungeon just i just felt it was really complex now you guys are all really smart people so was i just being thick or uh you know i mean there were probably points earlier in the game that i got temporarily briefly stuck and then thought oh god i can hook shot onto that rock over there or you know one of those brilliant eureka yeah. moments that you get <laughs> yeah. and this game's stuffed with them yeah um, um i i I had much the same experience. Um, I mm-hmm. it, it almost seemed uh, with the earlier dungeons, the first maybe two or three, that they were pretty easy for for yeah, Zelda dungeons. Yeah. They were pretty st- maybe not easy, but straightforward. Um, it yes, was very yes. clear what you needed to be doing, and the puzzles, if there were any, were not not very taxing. Like they they were you you just got this item, you need to use this item type of puzzles. Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm. was it was that level of of um of thing but yeah once you get into those last couple it's it's i the the stuff that i tended to have the most trouble with was when you start needing to coordinate what happens in between floors like you need to start falling through specific places or you need to change something on an upper level that will then have an effect on a lower level or there's the one where you have to collapse the pillars which is the one you're talking about with the Mm. with the uh, with the ball um, that, that was the stuff that, um, that tripped me up the most. Um, and that I don't mind saying I definitely did go to a guide for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's also a struggle because, uh, towards the last two, uh, dungeons, you have all these items now and, and these dungeons end up using at least all of them once. Mm-hmm. So you're going through each screen. You're at least hitting your menu button once or twice per screen in each dungeon and the dungeons get bigger as it goes along. So it drags really, out even yeah. longer. 
Yeah. So it just ends up like my mind was just racing after a while. <laughs> like, what am I doing? Because I had to go through so many screens to get to where I needed to go. But yeah, I would agree totally that there's a, there's a big spike towards those last two. I think the one thing that was kind of a saving grace, though, was the fact that this was uh, everything was contained to, for the most part, kind of single screen challenges, uh, especially early on in the game. Like, you know, we we did talk a little bit about the um, carrying that the big massive ball around and some of the annoying puzzles of uh, of pulling a rope to open a door and then just running right through it as fast as you can. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, for the most part, at least in the early game, there were a lot of you know, the solution will be on screen somewhere and you just have to mm-hmm. sit there and stare at it. Kind of like a kind of like portal, like everything that you need mm. is in front of you. I just need to look at this differently yeah. and consider what I have in my pockets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that. Um, you know, something that uh, like a link to the past and even the, the Oracle games, um, you know, they had some very clever designs, but it, they're not as immediate of puzzles. You know, they're not the, very clean simple like you know sometimes things would be hidden off the screen you just need to scroll it a little bit that way and so it's a little harder to keep everything in mind and so i i do kind of like uh like that and it kind of mitigated some of the mm-hmm. at least earlier challenges for me yeah yeah there's certainly um there's i think that uh, the one of our correspondents mentions later on i think this this one uh introduces the throw pot at door to open door uh, mm-hmm. mechanic mm-hmm. which I, I don't think had been there before um was that not in link to the past oh, i'm not sure I anyway so. no no so so that that was something that took a while for me to like you know in it's one of those things where you end up just you know trying everything right um, yeah yeah and so and it ends up working which isn't necessarily as cool as the the feeling of of yeah. smug when you've worked out you know that Oh, so that, you know, that even if it's mm-hmm. something like um, there are some bombable walls in the dungeons that don't have cracks, but they're indicated by other methods. So there'll be like yeah. a, a path that leads to nowhere, seemingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this also has the, you know, you can tap walls and it makes a different sound if there's a if there's a bombable uh, area, but it's not as completely kind of open and you work it out as the first two games mm-hmm. where it's like... Yeah, there might be something in here. There might be a, you know, like we were talking about the the bit in towards the end of uh, Zelda Two, where there's just a wall that you have to walk through because why wouldn't you try and walk through every wall in the game? Um, this at least has some sort of semblance of hintage, although I still suspect that you know even back in ninety three, ninety two, when this was being designed. Um, there still would have been more, uh, it would have been more acceptable. And, you know, I was there, mm-hmm. I remember it was more acceptable for games to be obtuse than it is now yeah. and and not have any particularly obvious, you know, get out clause other than phone the Nintendo helpline <laughs> or wait for Nintendo power to come out. Or So, uh, you know, I try not to feel too bad about being, you know, stupid and that my brain may have atrophied from years of, uh, of golden arrows and breadcrumb trails, as I always mention. Um, but, yeah, those last two dungeons are big and intricate and complicated. And I think if I hadn't had a, a deadline, I think they were they were cool enough and satisfying enough that I could have with patience and time, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of worked them out. And um, and sometimes it's 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 you just get on a roll. Obviously, we will talk about the the famous Ocarina Water Temple when we get to that one. Um, I was talking to somebody about this on on social media recently. 
because I I did the the water temple in Ocarina. I, I, re- I remember having no problems with it whatsoever. Everyone always says, oh my God, it's the worst dungeon Zelda, you know, da, da, da. For whatever reason, I was just on a roll that day and I had it in my, I just got it. I, you know, the picture in my mind was clear. I knew what I knew what I was doing. I knew how to do it. I don't know about, about you all, but I find my experience with a Zelda dungeon can vary wildly depending on my tiredness, mm-hmm. my emotional mm-hmm. state. Um, you know, you go into any sort of lateral thinking puzzle in, in life. Yeah, and absolutely. Sometimes you just need to sleep on it. Sometimes you just need some caffeine. Sometimes you need to walk away and come back to it. Um, and I think these these dungeons are very much like that. They are logic puzzles, ultimately, mm-hmm. where you're given a set of rules and generally those rules are completely fair and consistent. Also, something which I think this game sort of starts to set a trend for is the, um, even more so than its predecessor, is the fact that the bosses are really easy, um, by mm. and large. Yeah. I don't think there was a boss which gave me... So they're, they're, I, think they were, I think I had fun with all of them, mm-hmm. and um, none of them were, were massively obscure. There's, there's, a, there's a couple of bits where you have to use magic powder, which is something that you use so rarely yeah. that yeah. you think... Forget about it, yeah. Forget about it, yeah. But again, that's the puzzle, isn't it? The puzzle is sure. open yeah. your mind, think about the things you haven't done. Just because you haven't done that for ages doesn't mean you don't need to do it now mm-hmm. sort of thing. I feel like the fish boss was so easy. I, oh, yeah, I felt like crazy. I did it wrong. Like I was second-guessing myself. <laughs> That's insane, that one. I don't know what they were thinking there. The only yeah, the only just, boss I can really remember having trouble, and it wasn't even that I had trouble figuring out how to do it, it was just kind of frustrating, was the one where there's like four holes in the wall and he sticks his yeah, head out. Yeah. The only oh, reason yeah, I had yeah. trouble with that is not that I had trouble <laughs> figuring out how to do it, it was that the no, one that I hit timing. always seemed to be the trapped, the booby-trapped one, like, because there was always one <laughs> that just has, you know, a, a, did he have like a bomb on his tail or something and he just spirals out when you hit him? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I, had, I had some Yeah, the timing that on that one was probably harsher than, than a lot of them. But even um, so, it wasn't it wasn't what I'd call difficult. It was just a little... No, no, a little, no. Uh, It seemed yeah, like he was sure. out to get mm-hmm. me a little bit more than the other ones did. But again, yeah. you know, but harking back to the art, um, they, again, I think they managed to imbue them with a lot of, a lot of character. Like, none of... And, yeah. Um, they, none of them were kind of you know terrifying like i think as as we go on in the series you know from ocarina onwards the bosses start to become actually quite um you know quite unnerving mm-hmm. the way they look and the way they act um the way they're introduced with a big caption and, and all that sort of thing and, and camera sweeps but here they're kind of cute but <laughs> yeah uh but that's that's fine it's it sort of fits this dream world in on this handheld game for me <laughs> yeah the only He's not even really a boss, but the only, I guess there are many bosses too, right? Like halfway yeah. through each yeah, dungeon yeah. or at least one or two. And um, it's towards, it's, I, think, I can't remember which of the last two dungeons it's in, but it's towards the end of it where there's this like, I think it's a penguin with boxing gloves. Oh, yeah. And it just, yeah. It just constantly punches really fast at you and you have to get right or underneath or on top of it. And if it hits you, if it connects, it sends <laughs> you all the way to the beginning of the dungeon, which yeah, drove that- me insane. <laughs> So that trading sequence, this was the first Zelda game with a trading sequence of this nature. Um, and it's something that we've seen since, but it's not something that's perhaps so integral to the A to Z experience as it is in Link's Awakening. So this starts very early. And I suppose it would be possible to kind of not pick up on how important this is uh, for quite a while. Um, yeah. And in fact, I didn't really ever realize until 
trying to translate the final book with yep. which to, yeah. <laughs> right there with you. Yeah. So luckily I'd already done a good chunk of it. Yeah. Um, so you start mm-hmm. off by, you have to win, and this is another cameo, of course, that you have to win a Yoshi doll um, for a baby in the village. And from here, uh, you you know, you you give one item to one person and they give you another item. And it's the most bizarre series of things. You get a ribbon, <laughs> some dog food, some bananas, a stick, a honeycomb, a pineapple, a hibiscus flower and a letter. And that, by the way, is a bizarre sequence where you've got uh, a man <laughs> writing love letters to his goat yeah. A fancy woman who is pretending that she's Princess Peach yeah. uh, from the Mushroom <laughs> Kingdom. All a bit strange. Uh, there's a fishing hook, and this is a bit that I did have to, uh, 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 again, I will freely admit to having to look up where the guy was to give the fishing hook uh, to. Yeah, same here. He's hidden in the lake under a bridge, <laughs> um, yeah. which actually, again, I could have known because there's a guy under a bridge in Link to the Past and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you get to the end and you need this particular lens to understand these ancient writings which allow you to... Uh, to work your way through an unpleasant uh, and slightly randomly generated or procedurally generated mm-hmm. maze to get to the the inner core of the windfish egg to fight the nightmares. Um, yeah, so well, just thoughts about this whole this whole sequence, folks. <laughs> it's it, it is definitely easy to um, not realize how important that's going to be because it comes off as kind of just a. Yeah. A, a side thing you know you, you think maybe, yeah. maybe you'll get a sword upgrade or maybe you'll get a, an upgrade for one of your items um yeah but you don't it never really clues you in up until the very last minute that this is how That's you right. have to go to beat the final or to, to even get to not even mm-hmm. to beat just to reach the final boss mm-hmm. yeah right yeah the thing that i don't like about trading sequences in these types of games and you'll, you'll see it again in like donkey kong country 3 and all of that is that they don't really reward you with anything necessary along the way other than mm-hmm. a few kind of story beats and so you know yeah. if you did get a like a nice rupee payout or like a piece of heart every once in a while just to kind of make it worth it just to give you a little like dog biscuits along the way uh then that would more kind of incentivize me to pursue this but uh just the fact that you know you're doing this for the reason that like, okay, I know in my gamer brain, this is going to be essential down the line, but for now it's just uh, almost a little bit of an annoyance. And I, I tried to mostly kind of put it out of my mind. And uh, usually the sequence followed like either um, kind of memorable folks that I had seen before and say, okay, I know he's offering bananas. That's where I should head next. Or he wanted this. So I'll, I'll go in and, you know, deliver this item to him. But, uh, uh, yeah, most of the time you would be meeting these people in the order that you'd be running across them in the main game anyways. And so mm-hmm. it's uh, not not terribly taxing, although I'm not all that happy to see it back in the Oracle games, which I'm going through now. Um, so I only ended up with about 16 seashells. And I mm-hmm. think there are between, there's somewhere between like 24 and 30 in the game. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but you only need 20 of them. And if you get 20 and then upgrade your sword at the seashell hut or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, all, all future shells are just rupees. I think that's right. right. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't get enough. And again, these are items where some of them, there are, quite 
you know, apparent visual clues for them, you know, a bush where there's nothing else with a right, square yeah. of <laughs> grass around it or whatever. But some of them, are, you know, some of them are pretty obscure and places that you wouldn't yeah. necessarily think to dig. So mm-hmm. again, in terms of padding out the game length, um, you could spend a lot of time just digging, digging holes. Um, as yeah. it turned out, I really didn't feel that I needed an upgraded sword, but it might have, you know, it might have been worth the effort and the energy to... Mm-hmm. It's things like, you know, the little blobby enemies that split into two, uh, two blobs and then they stick to you. Yes. Yeah. If you have yeah. a level two sword, you don't get the little two end, the two oh, little sticky man. ones. Yeah, you just <laughs> you just take it, you just take them straight out. So oh. who, who went through the the seashells? I did. Uh, shenanigans. Yeah, I did yeah? this as well. Yes. Okay. Did you enjoy it? Was it worth it? Uh, I mean, it it definitely made things easier uh, after I after I yeah. had it. Um, it it was a little tedious maybe to get to some of them, um, but it. it I think it was worth it in the end. This was something I was actually really excited about when I saw that it was a thing because uh, the, I guess collecting, they weren't seashells. They were little like squid babies or that, but I think it was kind of a very similar thing in the link between worlds. Um, And I I assume that was a reference Mm -hmm. back to this game even. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was maybe my, my favorite part of that game. Is just going through the world and hearing the cry of these little squid babies and thinking like, oh, they're oh, around here somewhere. Right, it's right, maybe right. it's under this rock yeah. or maybe it's on the wall. These don't have, have that. To, <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's no call. There's no real indication that they're around. And so something that I was really excited about yeah. ended up being a pretty massive frustration, and I had to go to a guide to kind of figure out uh, the ones that I couldn't. And and then there's again, no way of knowing really because they're not that memorable which ones you have and haven't gotten. And so I had to no, yeah. just kind That's of follow its directions and say, well, it should be under this rock, but there's nothing here. So I already got this one. And yeah. um, so yeah. it was it was quite annoying, I found it to be. See, yeah, I didn't that, know that mm-hmm. this upgrades your sword until now. And I kept <laughs> right. walking around picking up these seashells, and every time you pick it up, there's this text box that comes up that says, you're going to get something really cool if you get all of them. And I didn't know how many there were. So I kept going back to the seashell house over and over again. Do I have enough now? Do I have enough now? Do I have enough now? No. And now, and I never really knew what I was going to get, but I was like excited. It has to be something good. It keeps telling me it's something good every time. And uh, now I'm finding out that it's a level two sword and I'm not too happy. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think you're right. It doesn't actually tell you. Um, it's not like the, the, say the gold sculptures in Ocarina where it pretty much says, you know, do this and something amazing is going to happen. And mm. this is how, how many there are of them and, you know, all mm. this sort of thing. Yeah. It's yeah. like, there are some of these and they're quite yeah. cool. And you know, again, <laughs> again, you know, this was five years prior to, to Ocarina of Time even and 20 years before uh link between worlds and i guess again that's that's where we see the difference but i quite like the enigma of it the mystery you know i never knew i I never knew until i did the research for the podcast Mm -hmm. um i may have may not found out either yeah and this game has a like a best ending as well which uh which i didn't quite get um because (laughs) at some point i died I don't know when. Um, obviously, the the save state thing makes this much easier to attain than it would have been back in the day. Mm-hmm. But if you uh, if you get to the the entire end without ever having been uh, game overed against your wishes, uh, you get to see Marin uh, enacting her 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 sad wish or mm-hmm. her happy wish to uh, to become a seagull flying mm-hmm. around. 
which is quite sweet. Uh, and yeah. her face sort of appears in the sky. It's a nice little so, extra incentive. So does this not imply then that everything wasn't destroyed or at least dissolved when you leave and that like everyone yeah. keeps going on in their own way? That's, that's a much nicer does. idea. So as a panel here, we're only really fully familiar with the DX version of the game, even though I did, as I say, I did start the black and white version a couple of times or at least once. Um, so the DX version came five years later, as we know, on the Game Boy Color and, of course, had to add some things for added value to those people who'd already bought it. Um, debatable whether it would have been enough to play it again, but I think actually the color graphics probably would have added yeah. enough for me to to play it again. Um, totally. You know, they're, they're, they're not... You know the color. The colors of the Game Boy Color were limited, but but they added they added some color. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so obviously Nintendo, as they do, showing off their uh, the unique features of their new hardware, added a color dungeon. In this case, um, completely optional. Um, there's a guide to finding it in the library in the first village. Um, so I did this quite early in the game. I didn't. I, I'd kind of always assumed that it was something you'd have to do later in the game, but it's not. Now you really um, only have to go uh, through like the first, it's like the first two dungeons, maybe the first three. It's you can get to it very early, which is really helpful because um, mm -hmm. it makes the game considerably easier than the original version would have been. Because uh, if you complete this color dungeon, which uh, is full of color-related puzzles that you need a color screen to see. Uh, you get the choice of red or blue armor for the rest of the game. Um, one of them gives you extra attack power. One of them gives you extra defense. So I chose the extra defense. And yeah, it was quite difficult to die from that point on. Um, so yeah, that makes the game quite a lot easier. And I thought it was a fun little dungeon. Uh, did did everyone else go for this? Yeah, yeah. I did. Um, I, I also took the defense. Um, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, no, it, it was... It was a nice little aside. And the other uh, DX exclusive thing is quite a cute little aside <laughs> that has no reward other than itself. Um, <laughs> this was when the, um, I think this was, I think you could print these out on the Game Boy printer. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. that. Yes, that yeah, seemed like I a think... nice application for that underutilized, well, maybe it didn't have a lot of promise to begin with, but the Game Boy printer that they uh, marketed alongside yeah. the Game Boy camera. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it tied in with that, um, even <laughs> though that was not a color device. Um, yeah, but this yeah. this photography side quest makes its debut. So there's a new little house in the world. Um, you pop in there and there's a little photography dude who is a mouse, I think. I think so. Of course he's a photography mouse. <laughs> and, um, and from that point on, uh, you sign up to his quest and every so often you go into a certain location uh, and you do a little pose and you get a little, you know, full screen cameo graphic of uh, Link doing a funny pose with somebody else normally in a certain place and the camera flashes and you get to keep the picture. And yeah, I think you, you can print them out. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. It, it, it exists. <laughs> it's kind of cute. Now, before we move on to hearing what our community thinks about Link's Awakening, this is uh, this is probably the most um, kind of significant uh, Ryan's other media Zelda media corner in a way. <laughs> in that there was there were discussions about whether we should actually cover these on a podcast or podcasts. Now, mm -hmm. I decided, <laughs> I think we all decided probably that we wouldn't give them their own podcast. These are the three uh, Philips CDI games 
Ryan, over to you. Yeah, a little bit of background on this. Uh, once the Sega CD was released, Nintendo wished to create their own disc-based system to compete, or at least a uh, disc-based add-on to the Super Nintendo. Uh, games on disc can typically be larger, have higher fidelity music, and can boast superior visuals to cartridge-based games. Uh, Nintendo originally paired up with Sony, working together on what they were calling the Nintendo PlayStation as an add-on right. to the SNES. Uh, Nintendo, without even formally or formally telling Sony uh, from what the rumors are, uh, they <laughs> broke their agreement and started working with Philips instead. Uh, Sony was understandably upset about this and used the technology that they had built with Nintendo to develop their own console, the tremendously successful, even to this day, PlayStation line. It did all right for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and after the Sega CD more or less failed, people didn't really pick up on it all that much, and Nintendo halted progress on their pursuit for a disc-based Super NES add-on, and instead um, they just gave Philips the license to a few of their core properties. And so they uh, Philips had created a few Zelda games and uh, at least one or two Mario games, I'd say. Um, Nintendo played no part in the development of these games, but they did consult on the appearance for the characters, which they modeled on um, kind of art that they created for The Adventure of Link. There were three Zelda games uh, that were released for the Philips CDI. Um, the first one came out in 1993 called Link, The Faces of Evil. It's, uh, I think... The most famous and enduring thing about these games are their uh, their animation. I think it would be fair mm. to describe them as um, grotesque, maybe, <laughs> uh, at least extraordinarily <laughs> unappealing, uh, even to the fans of the um, animated series that you that we'd covered a, a couple issues back. Um, the animation here was just bottom tier, extraordinarily off putting. Uh, horrid i don't know how many other adjectives i want to throw at this thing but uh the characters are always moving every frame of animation they're just constantly in motion and what's worse is they're always getting really uncomfortably close to the camera and <laughs> it almost makes me think that the animation is intentionally bad like they're uh, the people that are <laughs> are drawn are drawn in a like it must be an intentionally grotesque way like the people are uh, it is like grossly proportioned and have just awful facial expressions. And I think uh, you may be allowing your own personal feelings to color your <laughs> objective view of this. <laughs> it does look like they were animated in MS Paint. Uh, I, but um, <laughs> yeah, the um, the the first game, Link: The Faces of Evil, and then the follow-up, Zelda: The Wand of Gamelon, were side-scrolling games, more in the style of Zelda Two than any of the other Zeldas. Uh, they were overlaid on top of actually pretty nicely painted backdrops, uh, except that you had to play a game on them. They they didn't complement the game aspect all that well because there was a lot of that, uh, uh, what you would get from those style of games where you couldn't tell what was a ledge and what was just background. And, and so there's a lot of blind guessing as to the jumps and a lot of, mm. you know, not being sure what was a wall and what wasn't mm. and um, what was a safe place to stand. Uh, the controls were doing it no favors as well. The the CDI had a number of very different controllers. Uh, it kind of, 
I don't know if they were all first party or whether they just kind of allowed anybody to make controllers for them, but I don't know if it was a restriction of not having a standard controller, but uh, the jump was mapped to the up button, which is uh, usually a bad thing, I'd say, in platformer games. And then there are at least typically three buttons on the Philips CDI controller. And for some reason, they they neglected using that third button and just mapped all of the... Uh, the sword was mapped onto the, the first button, and then everything else was mapped onto the second button, including going through doors and using your items. And so, um, you know, sometimes when you are in a room and trying to exit through a door, uh, you'll throw bombs, which are expensive to acquire and unintentionally as they are mapped to the same button. So it's a little annoying there. Uh, Zelda, the wand of Gamelon came out later in 93. The King goes to Gamelon to assist the neighboring kingdom and said pretty much, if you don't hear from me in a month, then send link to save me. Uh, they do, and so they send Link, and for a long time, we don't hear from Link either, and so Zelda and Impa decide to go after them. So at this point, the king's been gone for, it must be two or three months now, so there's no telling whether or not he's actually okay. But uh, <laughs> Zelda follows rumors of Link to try to find him, and that's actually kind of an interesting story conceit. Uh, you play as Zelda, which is uh, one of the only times that you get to do that, really. And, you know, she's in full, uh, you know, proper ass-kicking mode like you'd see in the animated series. And uh, and she is uh, kind of hearing of Link's adventures and uh, villagers who had encountered Link previously. And some of them have higher opinions of him than, than previously before. And so it's kind of neat, like, being on the other side of the legend of Link and all of this. And so hmm. uh, you have to be the princess saving the day, which is it's just kind of cool. It's too bad nothing else about the game was cool, but they, they followed it up in 1994 as a way of showing <laughs> off the CDI's other uh, kind of um, claim to fame, so to speak, like one of the other things that it could do because it was a disk-based system. Uh, and the, these were the kind of live action aspects. The, oh, the cutscenes yeah. were in live action, oh, <laughs> which uh, we've seen some very nice live action games within the last couple of years or so. Uh, Her Story, which we talked about early in the episode, and um, uh, the cutscenes in Roundabout and stuff. And and so, you know, that's, that's not necessarily damning, but in this case, it, it didn't really do the game any favors. It... Um, the cutscenes didn't look good. They were very slow and very poorly directed and poorly costumed again. Um, they, they spelled Ganon wrong, which is always a <laughs> nice. annoyance. Good start. Good a, start. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, graphics for gameplay are, uh, they're different than the first two games, but I would still classify them as being extremely upsetting. Uh, everything is mostly made from photos or at least things that are drawn to look like they're realistic, but um, they just, they don't look good. It's from a top-down perspective, kind of like the uh, typical Zelda overhead camera, but um, yeah, they don't quite get the perspective just right and, um, and, and moving between screens is slow and terrible. Uh, it, it takes a very, very long time to load in between screens. And that was one of the things that um, is most commonly remembered about this one. So uh, they say of the three, this one is the most solid and the probably the best to play. But 
you know, you really have to have a sturdy constitution <laughs> to get through it. Although I would recommend looking up a compilation of the cutscenes of the first two games because uh, you, you've probably seen them in, you know, YouTube poops or YTMNDs back in the day, but they, uh, they're something to behold. They are uh, upsetting, but kind of interesting and intriguing in that way. Uh, we on Cadence, we try to uh, you know go into every everything with an open mind. We try to right. uh, not <laughs> dismiss everything as as uh, anything as objectively poor. But it's interesting that on the Wikipedia entry for Zelda's Adventure, which Ryan just said you know generally is considered to be the strongest of this three, the uh, the Wikipedia entry says modern criticism for Zelda's Adventure is unanimously negative. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would love to hear from anyone who actually has something positive to say about these these games as 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 experiences. The bottom line is they don't feature in Hyrule Historia. They're not part of the timeline, so they're not part of our podcast series, apart from that brief segment there. Let's move back on to Link's Awakening. Uh, and so these are posts from the community who post at canarince.com slash forum, or sometimes we get an email to podcast at canarince.com. I'll start with uh, Craig, who says, I played the regular pea green version of this as a kid and more recently as an adult, and it really holds up well. It's a remarkable achievement considering the hardware it was on. Despite the limitations, it still managed to deliver a thrilling and curious world. Despite how well it has held up when looking at it as a whole, there are still some little but persistent issues that arise due to the original hardware. The limited amount of buttons on the original Game Boy lead to a less than elegant solution of constantly changing the A and B button for items. This really becomes an issue when even items that could have been context sensitive, such as the gloves, need to be constantly switched. There is an area in the mountains where you need the gloves, feather and Pegasus boots to traverse all within less than a minute, which means a lot of opening the menu and changing items. This becomes more annoying when you accidentally press into something you can pick up or smash into with the Pegasus boots, a text box pops up, which become infuriating because of the limited size of the screen, meaning the text is delivered two lines at a time and overly verbose. These text boxes annoyed me so much that I would avoid the acorn and triangle power-ups because I would have to sit there for a good 10 seconds banging on the A button. <laughs> Fundamentally, it's a brilliant game. It just has a few issues which in reality don't actually change the way the game plays, but just slowly irritate through the game. Link's Awakening is like walking on a beautiful beach with a stone in your shoe. So yeah, I thought we'd start with that one. And yes, I did say we'd come back to those text boxes. So um, I, my question is, what were they thinking? <laughs> like, it's so weird. Baffling. It's so, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that Nintendo hasn't been known for its, you know, kind of painstaking and overly verbose and, you know, sequences at the start of games with, with, with text boxes and pressing the A button. And, mm -hmm. and they're not the only developer who are guilty of this, but, but sure, it's certainly something that, especially in the Zelda games we've seen and we do see again but here it's mad every time you pick up the guardian acorn <laughs> yeah. every time you pick up the piece of power every time you run into a rock that you can't <laughs> pick up yeah and it yeah. never changes and it never skips and there's no tech speed option and it always you know just at least just give me a super speed up button yeah you know mm -hmm. just to Boop, boop, just you know, double tap and skip, or yeah, any ideas? Why is there like a, a a philosophy that I'm not understanding about why they did this? The only thing I can think of is that there are two of these power ups: the the sword power up and the acorn power up. And so, 
like they have to give you some indication of which one is which and what they do. And but like a one time text explanation would have been enough for me. I can understand, uh, like, like you guys were saying, it once, you know, the first time you pick one up saying, hey, yeah. this is what this does. Okay, great. Now I know. And you don't have to tell me 30 more times for the next 30 times I pick up the flashy triangle. I get it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Uh, Ryan, can you read Fieldies for us? This was my very first foray into the Legend of Zelda series at the age of about 10 or 11. I loved this game for its music initially and was slowly drawn in from there. It took me some time to figure out this game, and I remember hours of sitting around a friend's house with his copy of the game, trying to find a way forward, and in fact, we never actually finished it. That is until 2014, when I bought the game on my 3DS and saw it through to completion. Overall, I found this game to be really enjoyable, with the design being spot on for a handheld, each square on the map representing a different frame of scenery. This is in my top four Zelda games, along with Majora's Mask, Ocarina of Time, and Wind Waker. But as I mentioned, the music in this entry has to be some of my favorite from the Zelda games. Excellent. Next up, we have uh, Andrew Brown. Andrew says, I like to think of Link's Awakening as the unexpected sequel. It would be easy to assume that, due to being a Game Boy game, it will be a watered-down Zelda experience, but it is not. Instead, I prefer to think of it as a scaled-down experience. A watered-down game would hack off key parts of the game design in order to fit on the tiny Game Boy cart. A scaled-down game, instead, accepts the limitations of its technology and reduces scope to accommodate that. There is not as many hidden heart pieces uh, as in A Link to the Past, but they're still there. The inventory is not as broad or varied, but it still has the essentials and puts them to good use. It's a textbook example of something which has long since stopped being a recognised problem, how to effectively adapt a console video game to a handheld. And so, quite unexpectedly, rather than being a Zelda game in body only, Link's Awakening captures the Zelda spirit. But Link's Awakening is unexpected in other ways as well. A Link to the Past gets a lot of credit for establishing the formula that the console-based sequels would generally follow. Find three MacGuffins, get Master Sword, find more MacGuffins, beat Ganon. But it is in Link's Awakening that many more developments that would become essential to the series were introduced. With only two action buttons to utilise, Link's Awakening defies the rest of the series and allows the player to assign any item to either button, even if it means not equipping the sword at all. By acquiescing to this technological limitation, new possibilities are created. Multiple items can be equipped at once, items can be combined to create new effects, and the shield becomes a usable item. All ideas which would carry over into future titles and expanded upon further. Link's Awakening also introduced the first trading side quest in the series. Link's Awakening even has a legitimate plot twist, and not like... A link to the past twist, which amounts to the game keeps going. The twist does what a twi plot twist should do, calls into question all assumptions the player has made about their actions up to that point. Is what the player doing right? Should they continue? Are the nightmares really evil? Even if they are, is destroying them and causing Kurland Island and its inhabitants to disappear the right thing to do? The last point is particularly well iterated through the presence of Marin, the first NPC in the Zelda series the player is allowed to develop a real relationship with. If Link finishes his quest, Marin will disappear too. Juxtaposition of the nightmares and Marin get at the root of what the game is really about. Should evil be allowed to exist, even if some good comes of it? Astonishingly, Link's Awakening seems to answer in the negative. Everything after this plot revelation calls into question the very nature of Link's character. Are his actions selfish, pragmatic, or is he a merely, merely a tool of the windfish? 
Link's Awakening offers enough information for all scenarios to be possible, but not enough to confirm any of them. Most unexpectedly, it is the first portable Zelda outing which offers one of the most mature narratives in the series. Link's Awakening is far from a perfect game. The player is required to tread and retread territory far too often. The quest with the ghost is a prime example, requiring the player to walk back and forth along the island's western half twice in succession before being allowed to continue. <laughs> Several other areas also require the player to walk back and forth repeatedly across the same few areas on various fetch quests. It is only the interesting composition of Coalint Island that keeps this from being intolerable. Several of the heart pieces are hidden in frustratingly arbitrary locations, requiring a pixel hunt over every inch of the game to locate. It also introduces the baffling throw-a-pot-at-something-lock-to-open-it puzzle, which is just baffling. I hope that anybody who plays Link's Awakening also finds it to be an unexpected game. It sacrifices little of the sophistication and cleverness of A Link to the Past, somehow manages to negotiate several of its limitations into strengths which would be followed upon in future titles, and what weaknesses it does have is down to the developers not taking advantage of what they had rather than hacking the game to pieces to fit on a Game Boy cart. I became aware of this game on a fifth-grade playground, refusing to believe that a Zelda could exist on the puny Game Boy. But I was wrong. It did exist and there have been few times where I've been quite so pleased to be so unexpectedly incorrect. W. Austin says, I remember watching my best friend start this game, the DX version. At the time, I only really played Pokemon on my Game Boy. Although I'd heard the name, it was the first Zelda game I'd ever seen. I immediately began saving my pocket money so I could play this game. I couldn't believe how they managed to cram such a world full of dungeons, characters, and fast action-based combat onto the Game Boy Color cartridge. What set this apart though, is the small things that stick to, in my head to this day. Watching my mate be so incredulous after stealing from the shop, thus having Link renamed Thief, finding out there was a secret ending if you didn't die, and saving my game straight after buying the bow to avoid spending all my rupees. When I found out there was a fully 3D Zelda called Ocarina of Time, I couldn't believe it. Going back to this game years later is just as fun, with a great soundtrack, just the right level of difficulty as not to be frustrating, and a depth of gameplay rarely seen on the Game Boy, despite the occasional inconvenience of having to constantly change items in the inventory. Yes, indeed. Flabio says, Glenn, our friend, says, Link's Awakening was the first game in the Zelda series I ever played, and it still remains my favourite of the pre-N64 Zelda games. I picked it up close to launch for my ailing brick Game Boy. At least one of the lines on the screen was dead by then. It doesn't play hugely differently from Link to the Past, but the more melancholy feeling to Awakening is something I find more appealing. The point in the storyline where the game suggests that perhaps you're not doing the right thing by trying to wake the windfish made me put the game down for a few days to think. It's a plot point games use more often these days. Shadow of the Colossus thrives on it, for example, but it was the first time I'd come across it. I bought the DX version for the Game Boy Color as well later on, and while it didn't add a great deal, I enjoyed playing through it again. Alasteridon says, Although this isn't my first Zelda game, it will always hold a special place in my heart as my first Zelda game. And for some reason, I have an exceptionally clear memory of the day I picked this title up. My younger brother had just gotten a Game Boy for Christmas that year, and after playing Super Mario Land to death, we were both eager to find something else to play on the system. I can still clearly remember standing in the shop with my brother and mum looking at the various titles on offer. Being quite young and still relatively new to gaming at the time, we really didn't have any idea what we were what we wanted or what games were actually worth spending our pocket money on 
So the decision was based entirely on what the box cover was like and what the blurb on the back sounded like. Such an innocent time. I can remember being drawn to the gold box and the words on the back, Kaholan Island, a place where dreams and reality collide. Even my mom, who had no interest in games really, commented that it sounded exciting, so we made our decision, and just like that, I started my love affair with Zelda. The game itself was a marvel. My only real experience of games up to that point had been some pretty basic Commodore 64 titles and the Super Mario series. I never really delved into anything with such a cast of characters, locations, and story. I was hooked. I spent hours trying to figure out the puzzles and exploring the dungeons, but it was the characters and setting that really resonated with me. I never finished the game, sadly. I can't remember how far I got now, but my lack of gaming experience back then eventually led me to getting stuck somewhere in a dungeon, and I eventually moved on to other things. Kaholan Island stayed with me, though. I even started writing my own short stories based on the island, and used the characters and locations that I could remember from the game. A few years later, I even wrote down and learned how to play the Mabe Village theme on piano. That earworm will never ever die now. I've gone back to it a few times over the years, but still have never been able to finish it. With so many games competing for my time these days, I struggle to make enough time to fully complete these older titles, but I will always remember my first steps into the world of Zelda. Uh, Scott Leland emailed, and Scott says, I absolutely adore Link's Awakening. My first Zelda game was Ocarina of Time, and when I saw this game in a display case at a store, I knew I had to pick it up. This was my first experience with a top-down Zelda, which was odd to me at first, but I soon realised how much I loved that configuration. Link's Awakening is definitely not a, quote, perfect game by any means, but all of its shortcomings are overlookable in my eyes. It has a moderate difficulty level, some clever dungeon designs, memorable characters, both big and small roles, and great music. The trading sequence I thought was worthwhile and fun. One of the aspects I like the most about Link's Awakening is that it seems to have the least connections to any other Zelda. This adventure is self-contained. What happens on Coalint stays on Coalint, and this is never more apparent than in the game's ending, an ending that always makes me smile. Lucas says, Having been brought up with an Amiga 500 as my core gaming machine, I was always envious of friends who were able to dive into the worlds of Mario, Metroid, and Zelda from the comfort of their own bedrooms. My first real taste of Zelda had instead been from poring over some adventure of Link maps found in an old Nintendo sticker book, and I found the world of Hyrule utterly fascinating, even from afar. My chance to f explore fully arrived some months after receiving a Game Boy for my ninth birthday, when I managed to stumble across the second-hand copy of Link's Awakening, tucked away in some dusty corner of an electronics boutique. I eagerly booted up the game, and it was everything I'd hoped for. The controls were smooth and dynamic, the characters were ironically full of color, and the island of Koalin seemed endless in opportunity for adventure. At the time, I remember being impressed by how complete and engrossing this miniature olive world seemed, sweeping you through varied environments and dungeons, riding on river rapids, and even touching the horrors of dognapping. <laughs> That feeling of elated panic I would get as a kid when entering a boss area can only be matched by modern times by a Souls game. Plus the pure joy of discovering that you can do laps around the shopkeeper, sprinting out of the door with some swag whilst, whilst his back was turned, only, be, only to be called thief by everyone for the rest of the game made me chuckle throughout. My strongest memory, however, was the final scenes of the game. 
After waking the windfish, all of those enchanting locations and interesting characters encountered along the way simply fade away into nothing. It gave me a sense of sadness, loss, and guilt that I can't say I felt from a game up to that point, and it hinted at the power of a story capable in a medium that I was to come to appreciate much more so over the subsequent years. Of course, this is all steeped in pure nostalgia. Although it's difficult to be objective about the game, I can see that mechanically it's little more than a re uh, retreading of its predecessor, albeit with a smaller stage, and so it doesn't really add much of its own to the Zelda DNA we're all so familiar with. But regardless of this, it's still a quaint departure from the Zelda storyline, a pleasant and captivating experience that still holds many hours of fun in today's gaming landscape. Thank you, and finally from the forum we have Gallo Pinto. Playing Zelda Link's Awakening on my dad's Game Boy is my earliest video game memory, as well as one of my earliest memories in general. I was five years old, and I couldn't read very well. I booted up the game, watched the storm that shipwrecked Link, woke up in a strange village, and then talked to Taryn. He gave me a shield and said something that I couldn't read at the time. I spent the next several weeks wandering around the village trying to figure out how to pet the dog and how to get the kids throwing the baseball to let me play too. <laughs> I had no idea what I was supposed to do and I was completely in love with the game. Um. A couple of months later, my older cousin came over to my house and I let him play my game while I was outside. When I came back, he was in a forest fighting some real scary looking monsters. You can get a sword in this game? I asked incredulously. <laughs> how? <laughs> He told me that Taryn tells you at the beginning of the game that a sword washed up on the beach. Wait, there's a town, a forest, and a beach? What else is there? To my five-year-old mind, this world was bigger and more awe-inspiring than I could imagine. I managed to get to the end of the second dungeon on that playthrough, with some reading aloud from my dad at key points, before I stopped, mostly because I was so sad that I couldn't use Bow Wow for the rest of the game. <laughs> I returned to the game when I was about 12 and beat it. I loved the music, the characters, and the sense of mystery about Curlent Island that still affected me even though I was older. I'm 43, I'd just like to say. I replayed this game for the podcast with the hopes of having something nuanced to say for the correspondence, but I just can't be objective with Link's Awakening. I adore this game. I understand how some people might find that certain mechanics haven't aged well, but even now, I just think it's a remarkable achievement for a Game Boy game. I had such different experiences playing it at different life stages and loved each one of them. Link's Awakening is a wonderful, magical game. What a wonderful story. That's really nice. I know. <laughs> Love that. Thank you, as always, correspondents, for both your, yeah, your, uh, your incredible, you know, uh, dissections and insight to the games and also wonderful stories like that. Uh, we like to, we like a blend. That's brilliant. Uh, now, uh, for some levity in our three word reviews from Twitter, follow us at Kane and Rince Do. Let's start with Leah and Craigity Craig. Uh, Craigity Craig says, pause, equip, repeat. James McGee says, link and jump. David Thayer says, eccentric yet refined. Casey Cook says, steal the shovel. Matt Barnhart says, good morning, thief. Tom Hewlett says, find the seashells. Scott Leland, don't steal anything. Nicholas Cuck, fish loves mambo. <laughs> uh, Andy Alexander's, dreamlike childhood wanderings. Mr. Flabio says, Bitter Sweet Symphony. Rob Hudak says, Deus Ex Machina. Gary Casey says, Unexpected Zelda Triumph. And Jack Burton, me, says, Miniature Melancholy Masterpiece. 
let us summarize. So this is interesting in that uh, I'm really I'm really so pleased again um, that we had some correspondence from people who played this as children back in the yeah, day on the yeah. original Game Boy because. <laughs> As it turns out, apart from me and my patchy experience, we've all come to this quite recently. But I think that's also potentially quite interesting for mm. for listeners who are, you know, still thinking about picking it up. So let us uh, each say, do we think people should still play this? And how how did it make you feel as part of the Zelda canon, Sean? Well, uh, last time I turned on my 3DS was to play Zelda 2. And I'm very happy to have played Link's Awakening now to watch that. Uh, taste out of my mouth because um, I had no real expectations from Link's Awakening other than I was like, oh, it's, it's a Zelda game, so it's going to have uh, Triforce, it's going to have uh, Zelda, it's going to, you know, all the typical trappings. And like from the mm. get go, it's a completely different game. Or I shouldn't say completely different, it's a very different game. Mm. And um, that ended up like uh, winning me over um at first i was i was thrown off that it was so different and like i said earlier in the podcast it took me a while to warm up to it we didn't we didn't mention much about the humor in the game but at first mm. i was really turned off by the the fourth wall breaking kind of stuff where like the kids are just they all say like you know what do i know i'm just a kid like kind of stuff like that and like at first i was like eh, i don't know i don't feel about that but eventually like after so many hours having to run into these people and dealing with this kind of uh dialogue and stuff it eventually just it charmed me over and and i um ended up having just a really pleasant time with Link's awakening and i'm really glad to have picked it up and i uh definitely recommend it to anybody else who might be on the fence Great stuff. Yes, it. Uh, we should say uh, I don't have the exact price in front of me, but I think it's like five pounds. So presumably yeah. like six seven bucks, dollars, six dollars yeah. or something. Yeah. So that's you know twenty hours, uh, right there or more if you do everything, or less if you're cleverer than me. Um, yeah. So I have this slightly weird history with this game. I didn't get it right at the start. Um, it was uh, my second Zelda game at the time, and as I say, I picked it up in various incarnations and tried it at various times before always getting I don't know I don't know if even distract is right because I just found myself not really feeling the urge to continue playing it and that for me is bizarre because with Link to the Past I couldn't put it down with Ocarina of Time I couldn't put it down and you know we're going through the series so I won't spoil my uh, experiences with all the Zelda games and you know some have been different to others but I always felt like I should adore this game as much as all these people told me that they adored it. Um, because I love A Link to the Past so very, very much, I consider it one of my all-time favourite games, as we discussed a month ago. It seemed like, well, this is just kind of more of that. You know, everyone says it's of, of equal quality or similar quality. Some people even prefer it. So why am I not hooked into it in the same way that I was these other games? Am I just being really shallow because it's 8-bit and not 16-bit or, or what? And I still don't honestly know. And I still had to kind of, um, after taking a bit of a hiatus with this playthrough, um, I still had to kind of get myself to go back to it, you know, reminding myself that I had a deadline. So there's something about this game that doesn't grab me as much as Link to the Past and some of my other favourite Zeldas. I don't know if it's those dialogue boxes we talked about, the slow text crawl, unskippable text, the item wrangling, or just the fact that it's... It was a monochrome adventure now in rendered in eight colours. But on many, many levels, now I've finished it, I think it's a brilliant, wonderful little game. It's 
got its own unique atmosphere. It has charm and humor in spades. Uh, it's got a spade. And yeah, uh, it's, so it's an odd one for me. I certainly um, would recommend it, especially given how much I know a lot of other people love it. Um, but for whatever reason for me, it's not, it's not the most compelling Zelda, um, but I'd still say it's an absolutely essential part of the franchise and the canon. So, um, yes, you should have it on your 3DS virtual console for sure. Ryan? I think my experience for this was uh, perhaps negatively affected by going in with really high expectations. I had always heard this game talked up as like, oh, if you're a Zelda fan and you haven't played this one yet, then you really must because it's going to, you know, change your mind. It's going to be one of the absolute top of the list. And, you know, I just, I hear that from so many different sources that I, I got a little excited going into it. And Can what I problem. found, yeah, <laughs> what I found was a good Zelda game and perhaps I would have been a little bit more kind on it if I had gone in without knowing the twist. Although, you know, by this point in my gaming career and just being around the gaming world, it's one of those things that you just kind of hear about. Uh, and there was a lot of things that I liked about it. And I, I think that it was very cleverly designed, especially given the limitations of the Game Boy. It's, it's miraculous that they were able to fit everything onto this cartridge and make such a, a coherent and wonderful adventure and world. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I did find myself kind of wishing that it was a few dungeons shorter or, you know, just I, I got to a point and I was just ready for the game to be wrapping up and the game wasn't really there yet. And so it, it just kind of lasted a little longer than I wanted it to. But uh, yeah, overall, I think that I really like these Zelda games that are a little bit more just contained individual adventures uh, kind of like this and Majora's Mask is again the the parallel that I've drawn a couple of times throughout the podcast that these both feel like you know just stories that are happening to these islands or these towns or these you know corners of the world and uh, kind of like the legends that emerge from these different societies and um, you know and that kind of thing is really exciting and that and it, you don't have to rack your brain so much about like, where does this fit into the overall, you know, is the uh, Mount Doom in the same location as ever before and uh, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it, it's just, it, it feels more self-contained and they are able to take more risks and able to do different things, which I think is one of the big, like promising aspects of the Zelda games, each one being, uh, each one starring a different cast, essentially. Uh, you know, a reincarnated spirit of the warrior inhabits a different link in every game, pretty much. And each one featuring, yes, to some degree, a different location, uh, usually within Hyrule. But um, I want more of these games to be this wildly divergent and, and this um, almost kind of genre-bending shift that we see here. Uh, this game was a a pretty direct follow-up to A Link to the Past, which which I liked, but, um, you know, maybe playing them back-to-back, -back, I wasn't as enamored with some of the puzzles because they were the same, and a lot of the items were the same and used in the same way, and, you know, you in both games, you had to dislodge a book from on top of a bookshelf by Pegasus Boots ramming into it, and there were so many echoes of puzzles that were... Um, 
you know, almost a little eerie in how similar they were. But um, but it, it is a perfectly serviceable Zelda game with an excellent uh, plot twist at the end if, if you manage to not have it spoiled for you. And, uh, and I, I'm glad that I played it, but, you know, it, it kind of fell short of the expectations of being the revelatory experience that I thought it would have been. Ah, well, Leah, did you have the same sort of time as Ryan or did it live up to those expectations? Well, I, I had, I, I'd say actually my experience was a little closer to Sean's because I actually was coming off of a Zelda game on my 3DS as well. Um, and it was Majora's Mask in my case, which mm. uh, not to uh, not to tip my hand, but I did not have as positive an experience with that as I maybe mm. would have liked. Um, but I didn't really have the expectations set up for me about Link's Awakening because I thought I'd already played it. I thought I knew what I was going in for and that it was kind of yeah. just going to be, you know, refreshing my memories and refreshing old ground. I, I knew where the story ended up. I knew what the twist was. And I, I really did think that I knew more about the actual gameplay than it turned out that I did. Um, but I was kind of pleasantly surprised to find that I didn't have a complete handle on what was going on. And, and and that, for me at least, what I ended up experiencing um, was was very positive and was something that I wouldn't necessarily have expected out of a, a um, what was originally an original Game Boy uh, title. So, I yeah, no, I know I don't I don't think that I had that build up coming in because I although I may have heard some people with, with you know positive opinions saying you know Link's Awakening is great and everything. Um, I, I, I don't think that I heard very much of that. Um, and I would say that I, I would not, I would not agree with saying that this is a good jumping in point for the series necessarily. I don't think it's a terrible one, but I, there, there are certainly other titles that I would recommend before I would recommend that one. If you've never played a Zelda game before, if though you are like me, a, a fan of the series anyway and have played a lot of titles and haven't gone back for this one i think that it's definitely worth that i think that it it holds up as long as you look at it as long as you're not looking for it to be a modern game uh, if you go in knowing what it is i think that um your expectations will probably be surpassed um and if like like me you didn't really have a whole lot of expectations to begin with i i think that it's something that will pleasantly surprise you and um that is definitely worth going back to even uh, as old as it is lovely stuff thank you everybody um now in a month's time we have uh, to undertake the daunting task of dissecting surely one of the most celebrated uh, video games of all time in Ocarina of Time. But it's interesting, I read this quote from A.G. Aonima, who worked on Link's Awakening and has been, as I said earlier, the series' uh, main creative force since Majora's Mask and uh, was key on Ocarina of Time, Wind Waker, Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword, of course. He said uh, of Link's Awakening, I'm certain it was a breakthrough element in the series. If we had proceeded from a link to the past straight to Ocarina of Time without Link's Awakening in between, Ocarina would have been different. Mm -hmm. No doubt. No doubt. So it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Ryan, Sean and Leah and to tell you all that next time in issue 213, a woman is interviewed seven times by the police. Well, that's her story. 